And now, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand these deep, rich truths of your word. We sometimes call them Reformation truths, but they are gospel truths, and they come out of your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us grace this morning, grace to receive it, grace to apply it, grace to internalize it. May we eat it and drink it. May it be nourishment to our souls and a protection to our hearts. May it protect us from temptation and guard us against self-indulgence or anything that would lead us away from Christ. May our lives really be, may they be lived in such a manner that proclaims to the world that our desire above everything else is that Jesus Christ would be preeminent in us, whether we live or die, just as the Reformers taught and lived. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to remember the Reformation and the deep, rich truths that came out of it or were restored by it. And so, Father, we thank you for this hour, and we ask that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We will be there in a little bit. I will tell you that my intention was to do two of these Reformation doctrines and you know, you're not going to be surprised by the reality that I couldn't squeeze two into one sermon. When I got thinking and studying about the second doctrine I was going to cover today, uh, namely, grace alone, sola gratia, it was so massive, it was so big that there was just no way I could connect that or make an addendum of it after talking about solus Christus, which is Christ alone, Christ alone, salvation by Christ alone, justification by Christ alone. And so I've decided to um, just focus on Christ alone. I originally, when I produced the material for the, uh, for the bulletin, uh, after it was printed, I happened to walk into the office and I looked over at what Katie had done and I saw the bulletin and I went, oh, Katie, I'm so sorry, I forgot to put my two-point outline in. And then... The next day, I removed one point, and I looked back, and, and I went in, and I looked at that, the, uh, the page, and I said, man, by the providence of God, I'm so glad I didn't give her the outline, <laughs> because it's all changed. And so you have a blank sheet before you, and I trust you'll fill it in with what you believe is important as we go. For those of you who missed last week, we're learning about the five doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, just a little reminder about the Reformation. I want to do two things, tell you a little bit more about the Reformation. By the way, if you're missing Sunday school, stop missing Sunday school. Uh, it is a fabulous education on what the Protestant Reformation was about. But the Reformation began on October 31st, which this is why we are talking about it now. In fact, everybody across Christendom is talking about the Reformation right now because it is the 500th anniversary year of the Reformation. Of course, Luther served as the spark in the initial flame of the Reformation, but he was not the only reformer of note. John Calvin was another. In fact, as brilliant as Luther was, um, Calvin was probably best described as the, the genius behind the Reformation. Uh, he was the 
the true theologian that helped bring all of this doctrine together and to make it something that people could read and, and not codify, but to get it written down in such a manner that we could discover it and evaluate it and reference it. And, and so Calvin is a major player in the Reformation. Whether you like him or not, doesn't matter. He was a major player in the Reformation. He was born in Neon, France, on July 10th, 1509, that same year, Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon turned 25 years old. They were 25 when Calvin was born. That year, Luther, the year Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Calvin had turned eight years old. You see the spread in ages between Luther and Calvin. But even then, as an eight-year-old, he was something of a child prodigy. In college, Calvin was such a, a precocious student. His school had to, had to figure out how to change their constitution to allow for a 17-year-old to graduate with an MA. Um, from there, he moved on to law school and graduated with a doctorate in law in his early 20s. He was a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He was in law school. He was Catholic. This is France, right? Of course, everybody was Catholic back then, but especially in France, uh, where he was going to school. He was a Frenchman. And when he went to law school there in Paris, he had a, a Greek professor who had become a Lutheran. And this Greek professor gave Martin Luther's book called The Liberty of the Christian Man to Calvin as a gift. And Calvin began reading Luther. And it wasn't long before Calvin became a Lutheran. Um, in this book, uh, Luther carefully explains the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the Holy Spirit used this book to bring Calvin to faith alone in Christ Jesus by grace. He immediately renounced Calvinism. I'm sorry, not Calvinism, Catholicism. He re immediately renounced Catholicism, and he became a reformer. Uh, here's what happened. He was in school. One of his friends wasn't going to give a speech. His friend wasn't nearly as bright as Calvin was and needed help writing his speech. Calvin apparently wrote it for him. And so his friend gets up and he gives this speech, very Lutheran. The authorities find out about it, and they come knocking on his friend's door. And Calvin is with him, and he's like, dude, <laughs> what did you do to me? And uh, when the authorities come to arrest him and Calvin, Calvin grabs up whatever books he can. They both jump out of a window and escape for their lives. In Catholic France, it was illegal, as I said, to be a Lutheran. So Calvin found himself on the run. He planned to make his home in Strasbourg, where he could support, kind of support the Reformation by writing books. He was going to be, just become an author and settle down in a, in a quaint town in the north of Germany. But uh, in an unexpected providence, when he was on his way to Strasbourg, he stopped in Geneva to kind of get a room for the night. And really, it wasn't any more than that. He stopped for one night. And all of a sudden... And at first, unwillingly, that night or the next day, he was almost forcibly made pastor of the main church in Geneva. Um, it was against his will. 
And um, Booser, I believe it was, who was in Geneva at the time, uh, told him, we're so glad that you're here, young Calvin. We've heard about you. We want you to be our pastor. And he said, no, no, I'm just passing through to go to Strasbourg. I'm going to write books. And he said, no, you're not. You're going to stay here and you're going to be pastor. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm just here to sleep and I'll be on my way. And Booser comes back and he says, if you don't stay and be our pastor, I will pray God curses you. And Luther said, okay, I'll stay. (laughs) Different time. And he stayed, and all the things that happened in Geneva as a result of Calvin's ministry came about because of that, what we would think of as a strange, unusual providence. Well, from this small hamlet in Switzerland, Calvin wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion. He did it because his brothers in France were being murdered They were being burned at the stake. And he wanted to appeal to the king of France about what Christianity really is. If you could just see what Christianity really is, you you wouldn't be murdering these people, these men who love Christ. And so he wrote his Institutes of Christian Religion, which became, it made him the, the second greatest influence for reviving the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, what I'd like to do is this week send, send out in an email a link to both of my biographical messages on Calvin and on Luther so that at your leisure you can maybe catch up on some of their life and their history and some things you don't know probably about both of these men, especially Calvin, who's been vilified um, in his person over the years. And um, um, there is much about Calvin that you know for sure that just ain't true. Uh, he, was, he was a man of God, to be sure. Um, well, having already immersed ourselves in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, this morning I want to consider the doctrine of salvation in Christ alone. You do know, do you not, that not everyone, as I said in my prayer a little while ago, not everyone who is faithful to what their church doctrine dictates um, can sing that song, in Christ. They might be able to say, in Christ, skip a word, and then the rest. But you can't say, in Christ alone. You can't say, in Christ alone. Sola, solus Christus, was a massively important doctrine that was rediscovered by the Reformers during the Reformation. And so, rather than trying to do two doctrines this morning, I just want to do one. We'll wait on grace alone. I can't wait to talk to you about grace alone. I just wanted to give it enough time so that we can really delve into it. Um, We talk about Christ alone, salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, and to the 21st century believer, this may seem like a no-brainer. I mean, what professing Christian would claim to believe that salvation is available by anything else than Christ alone by grace alone? And the answer to that question is every self-respecting Roman Catholic. Um, and please understand, I'm not bashing Roman Catholics. I'm, I'm not speaking bad about people. But there is a system of belief that I believe, and the Reformers believed, a Protestant you believe. A system in, that is, by its very nature, sending people to hell. 
And such is the case with Roman Catholicism. To some, that may sound shocking and offensive, but it's true. It was true then, it's true now. The very doctrines that led the Reformers to challenge the Roman Catholic Church, to seek to reform the Roman Catholic Church, and to ultimately break away from the Roman Catholic Church are still in place today. Minor changes have been made, like they, they don't have to preach in Latin anymore, they can preach in English. Um, they may tell you that they believe in salvation by grace through faith because of Christ, and you may think, ha, huh, well, they believe just like us. It's not what we believe. Reformers demonstrated from Scripture that salvation is rather by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. The word alone in the Latin is sola. It's the line of demarcation. That one little word is the line of demarcation between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation. Everyone who claims to be Protestant the Roman Catholic Church's system was precisely the kind of complicated religious scheme Paul stood against. In fact, it's the very kind of system that Jesus freed him from in Acts chapter 9. You can remember this, 9 shine. This is when Paul was on the road to Damascus and this light shined out on him and sure enough, it was the Savior. Um, that was the day in Acts chapter 9 when on the Damascus road, the Lord blinded him and threw him to the ground. And Paul said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When he realized that the Lord, Jesus, whom he had been persecuting, was alive, really alive, it changed everything. If you were to ask Saul of Tarsus, the devout first century Pharisee, this question, Saul, what must I do to be saved? He would probably answer, well, that's complicated. First, you have to be born Jewish. You have to be circumcised, preferably on the eighth day. When you're of, of age, you need to begin keeping the whole law of God. When you break a law, there are sacrifices that need to be made. You need to give a tenth of all of your crops to the temple. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to do everything the law requires. And then, beyond the explicit commands of the Old Testament, there are all kinds of traditions that you must also observe relative to hand washing and other things, how far you can travel on the Sabbath. Then, in the end, maybe, just maybe, God will let you into heaven. And that's a condensed version. Now consider the profound change that took place in Saul of Tarsus when he, when he became Paul the apostle. If you were able to approach Paul now, born again, transformed, and ask him, Paul, what must I do to be saved? He would answer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. Thank you for that amen. It's not complicated. What happened? What happened to Saul? Answer, 
He saw the resurrected Christ. He actually spoke with the resurrected Christ. He had, on more than one occasion, personal audience with the resurrected Christ. And I want to suggest to you that though uh, through the centuries and through, well, for him, it was through this encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road and afterward, and by the Spirit-empowered study of the Old Testament scriptures, Paul had learned that justification had always been by faith alone. It had always been by faith alone. And now his spirit-wrought faith would find its object in the promised Messiah, God's only begotten Son who fulfilled all righteousness by his life and paid the full penalty for our sin by his bloody death and thereby proved by the resurrection that God had accepted his sacrifice. That's what happened to Paul. He met Jesus, he talked with Jesus, and he studied the Bible. It's amazing, if you look at the book of Acts, first thing you see with the apostles is that suddenly they understand the Bible for the first time, and everything changes. And it was after that, Paul, that Saul of Tarsus, also had his encounter with Jesus, and he had the same experience. And Martin Luther, I didn't put the quote in my notes, but I mentioned it last week, when he understood justification by faith alone, he said it was like the curtains peeled back, the sun shone in, and I felt that I was born again. And then he said, it changed all. My view of all of the scripture suddenly changed. He suddenly understood his Bible. That's what happened to Saul of Tarsus when he became Paul. He understood what God had been saying all alone, all along. Salvation is in Christ alone. Now, the Reformation doctrine of Solus Christus begins where we left off last week in Paul's letter to the Romans. So let's turn back to Romans 3 and listen to him explain it. So here's the thing. The invitation to the gospel of Jesus Christ, very simple. What it took to create a simple gospel was fairly complex, at least for Paul to explain. And that's why we have the book of Romans. That's why we have, and one of these days, I'm going to preach the book of Romans. Uh, for every preacher, Romans is a fearful book. Not as fearful as Revelation, but it's a fearful book because of the gravity, the weight of the doctrine. And I tell you, for, for these uh, topical sermons, you know, I usually don't preach topical. It's, it's a lot harder to preach topical. It's just easier to go to the next verse. But in these weeks, it's forced me to study this section of Romans. And now I can just tell you, those of you who want me to preach Romans, I can't wait to preach Romans, but we're going to do Philippians next. Um, Reformation doctrine of solus Christus begins right here in Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 21 through 26. I won't ask you to stand this morning, but listen and follow along as I read. This was the text from last week. There's, there's three things we want to see. Last week it was that Faith is faith alone. This week, it's Christ and Christ alone. Next week, it's grace and grace alone. All from kind of the same text. 
verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all, that means Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in, the divine for, in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The question is, how does one get righteousness? And we've talked about this over the years. I've been here for 23 years. We've talked about this so many times. The big question is, where do unrighteous people who want to relate to a holy God, where do they get the requisite righteousness? And Paul's answer, in the book of Romans, and everywhere Paul writes, is Christ for righteousness. It's Christ for righteousness. So the question is, how does one get righteousness? How does one get the righteousness he needs to fellowship or relate or be reconciled with an infinitely righteous and holy God? And by the way, as, as Matt so aptly this morning described, this was Martin Luther's question. Um, and it terrified him. He, he saw no answer. And, and everything that he was seeing in the Roman Catholic Church, everything he tried brought him no relief until he understood that it was by faith alone. But this is what I want you to understand. It's not the faith that actually saves. You're going to have to pay attention to this very carefully. It is not the faith that saves. Faith per se, per se, by the way, means by itself, faith per se, cannot save anyone. It is the object of our faith that saves. It is not our faith that saves. It is the object of our faith that saves. Two men jump out of an airplane. One has a parachute. The other one doesn't. The one man calls over to the other. How do you hope to survive this fall? To which the other man, without the parachute, calls back. I am a man of faith. <laughs> I believe with all my heart that I will survive. <laughs> the other man says, see ya. <laughs> um, you see, it's not the faith that saves. Faith in your own faith leads to death. Read any day's top news stories about any tragedy that's happened recently or difficulty some Hollywood actress has faced and they will talk about their faith without Jesus, without the cross, without redemption, without law, 
without any condemnation or threat thereof. On the other hand, if we call out to the other man, how do you hope to survive this fall? He will call back, I too am a man of faith. I believe this parachute is sufficient to bring me safely home. You see the difference? It's not your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. The object of the second man's faith is something that has proven power to save. Now, obviously, the illustration breaks down because we know that on occasion somebody's parachute fails to open, and that's bad. But never with Jesus. His parachute for us always opens. And so it is. The Reformers taught that faith alone is the instrumental cause of justification. That is, when we say instrumental cause, we mean it is the instrument or the means by which we lay hold of salvation. J.I. Packer says, faith is simply the hand that grasps the justification that God supplies in Jesus. Faith is not the material cause of our salvation. Faith itself does not have the power, the substance, the necessary material to save us. But Jesus Christ alone has the power. He has the authority. He has the sufficiency. He is in himself the necessary material to save us. And he saves us to the uttermost. And who? All who believe. And, and understand, the, the point of the parachute illustration, it's a good illustration, though it's flawed, but it's a good illustration because it's one thing, let's replay the tape a little bit, a little bit differently. Both men are in the plane, and they're getting ready to jump out. And one man... Uh, one man asks the other, how do you hope to survive? And he says, well, we have parachutes. I believe in parachutes. I believe in all my heart in parachutes. I, I am going to be safe because of a parachute. Well, how come you're not wearing it? Are you going to put it on? Listen, I don't have to put it on. I believe. I believe in parachutes. That's all I need to do. And you know what? A lot of people think of their salvation that way. They're not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not throwing their lives upon Jesus Christ. They're just saying, I believe. I believe in the Jesus parachute. I'm never going to put it on. It's too binding. It, it requires too much. It, you know, it doesn't feel good sometimes. And you know, I just believe. Isn't that the requirement? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yes, but not that kind of belief. You must throw your entire life upon him. You're all of your hope of salvation upon him. B.B. Warfield says, or said, he's with the Lord, the saving power of faith thus resides not in itself, but in the almighty Savior on whom it rests. It's rest, rest in faith. When your faith is in Jesus, and by the way, I talk about all of your hope, all of your trust. How much faith do you need 
How much faith do you need? People ask me, you know, sometimes, uh, did I believe enough? I, I just doubt my salvation. Did I believe enough? So the question is, how much ba- faith do you need? About a mustard seed. It's all you need. It just needs to have its proper object. Christ alone. And so in other words, faith is not the material cause of our salvation. Faith itself does not have the power, the substance, the necessary material, as I said. It is not sufficient, but Jesus is. Here in Romans 3, the answer to the question, where does righteousness come from, Paul says, verse 22, it is Christ for righteousness. Again, verse 24, redemption is found in Christ Jesus. And by his death, verse 25, God satisfies the demands of his own holy justice, his wrath, by putting forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. You notice all of this is Christ, 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 Christ. Again, chapter 5, verse 1, just flip the page. Chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace. Now, peace here isn't that feeling of peace. It is peace instead of conflict. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, Christ alone, verse 6. For at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice, it is Christ. Moreover, verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we now have received reconciliation with God. And we could just keep reading. And here's what you see. You see these three things coming together. And we're going to do the same thing next week. We're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see grace, free gift, grace, free gift, grace, free gift. But right now, we're looking at Jesus, Jesus Christ, the propitiation. He's our redemption. He's our ransom. And the Apostle Paul mingles all of this together, and the Reformers rightly looked at these passages and said, obviously, what Paul means to communicate is that your justification, your salvation, you can call it redemption, all of it is based on faith alone, Christ alone. Grace alone. And we could continue. But here's what I want from you. I think the Holy Spirit wants you to experience right now. I think he wants you to feel the gravity and the simplicity of the gospel. The gravity, the weight The glory of it, on the one hand, it is this massive thing, this gospel of grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, this massive complex thing that God initiated before the foundation of the world, and all of the intricacies that started, at least in being verbalized, all the way back in Genesis Chapter 3, verse 15, where he tells Eve that she will have a son one day who will crush the serpent's head and make all wrongs right. Implication. The complexity and the gravity and the glory of the solas on one side, and yet on the other side, the simplicity of the gospel invitation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ a saving thing? Because of what is involved in what Christ did for us. It is beyond our comprehension. And yet Paul says, you can comprehend. His love is deeper and greater and wider. It is something that is unfathomable. And yet, you can understand something of it. You can, you can understand enough of it to be amazed, to be humbled. You can understand enough of it to drive you to worship. Jesus himself says um, that he is the all-sufficient Savior. He is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the wisdom of God and the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we'll talk about that some more in later weeks. No wonder Jesus repeatedly presented himself as an exclusive Savior. He is the Lord and there is no other. Listen to what he says, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not by, O Buddha, or Muhammad, or Hare Krishna. There is no other mediator. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. Unlike most Christians today, Paul was not ashamed to present Jesus as the exclusive Savior because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And I think the clearest and most immediate evidence that Paul had had a supernatural, life-transforming, heart-transplanting, soul-redeeming encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road that day is the fact that he immediately turned his back on that complicated, man-made, works-righteousness, religious system that had no power to save anyone. And so we read this last week, but turn to it again. Philippians chapter 3. I want you to hear Paul. I want you to hear him over and over again. Because the reformers did. And they followed him. Chapter 3, 2 through 11. 2 through 10. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the, ESV says, evildoers. He means evil workers. Those who believe their salvation is wrapped up in their works and privileges. For we are the circumcision. Circumcision was the first work. Who worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No, I myself have reason for confidence. You get the implication there, right? The history behind that. I have reason to be. I mean, if we're talking about confidence in the flesh, I was a Pharisee. I was, I was the top guy. 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, that means a Jew of Jews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I gave it up for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul turned his back on that whole man-made, actually it was an admixture of what God had said and what man had declared. And it's the same thing with all, well, not all, some, some major religions don't have any real scripture in them. But the major, the major ones, at least in this country, they mix enough Bible in it to make you think. Even the Koran, do you realize that the Koran would not exist in its present form if it were not for the scriptures, the holy scriptures? They had to go to the Bible to get their traditions, to get their stories, and to build on them. Oh, beloved, Paul, when he met Jesus Christ, pulled the ejection handle and jettisoned himself out of Judaism as fast as he could. And from that moment... He met the resurrected Christ. The only thing that mattered was knowing Jesus. The only thing needed was knowing Jesus. The only thing profitable for him was knowing Jesus. It's not merely that he no longer enjoyed the old forms of religion anymore. The fact is he hated them. In Galatians 2, he even publicly rebukes no less than Peter to his face. Why? Well, because Peter had done something that indicated he was turning his back on the gospel or he was turning his back on what the gospel accomplishes, he was causing confusion about the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And when Paul is writing to the Colossians, he warned them about man-made religion and reminded them of the most wonderful mystery in the cosmos, namely, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is your hope. It's not in tradition. It's not in man-made religious um, sacramental rituals. Christ in you. And then he says, and therefore we proclaim him, that is Christ, warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so from that moment on, 
From the moment that Paul met Jesus Christ, he was committed to preaching one simple and singular message, which he expresses very plainly in his first letter to the church of Corinth when he says this, I resolved when I came to you not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is my gospel. If you go to the Baptist Union churches in the lands of Russia, in not every church, but nearly every church, especially the older ones, they'll have a sign up behind the pulpit. Big. It usually covers the entire wall. And it says, we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. Peter announced to the Sanhedrin later, well, earlier, chronologically, but later in the text, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For, as Paul will say to Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so listen to me, beloved. If you were today to ask an educated priest of the Roman Catholic Church, what must I do to be saved? His answer would be something like this. Well, it's complicated. It's complicated. I mean, it helps. It would help if you were born Catholic because then you could experience baptismal regeneration. That gets you off to a good start. Beyond that, you must believe in Jesus Christ, of course. You must go through confirmation where you will learn the traditions of the magisterium and earned merit in the eyes of God for doing so. You must regularly attend the Mass, which they have every day, just as the sacrifices were offered every day in the Old Testament. And then if you obey the Bible and the traditions, you will earn more merit with God. And you will be infused with more grace. If you pray to the saints and give to the church and help the needy, you will earn more merit and be infused with more grace. And if you pay for a mass or give a sum of money to the church, you will earn more merit and be infused with more grace. However, if you sin, you must confess to a priest who would decide whether your offense is venial or mortal. Smaller sins are venial and can be made up for by prescribed acts of penance and charity. And you get to keep all the grace that you have earned so far. If, however, you've committed mortal sin, whatever grace was infused to you to that point is now dead. Grace is dead in you, hence the term mortal. And you'll need to start all over again, except this time it's going to be a little harder because you're already starting from a position of demerit. And then when this life is over and you've done all of that, it's time for you to die, the hope of salvation salvation still remains somewhat out of reach. And that's because since you will still lack the perfect righteousness that God requires, you must go to purgatory. For an undetermined period of time, probably hundreds or even thousands of years, where you will suffer until all your sins are adequately expiated by fire 
And then and only then will you be welcomed into heaven. The best terms I can think of to describe this man-made works righteousness religious system are, number one, unbiblical. Number two, hopeless. Just like the legalistic system of justification by works taught by the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, And that's why Jesus' invitation, I mean, think about this. Think about being under that system. And some of you in this body were, and you've told me. So many of you have come out of Catholicism, and you said, you've told me. I was in Catholicism my whole life. and never once heard the gospel. Imagine living under that system. And we're talking about Old Testament Phariseeism, Judaism, the works righteousness there, or one in a system like Catholicism, and then you hear Jesus say, come to me. Aren't you weary? Isn't this a heavy burden for you to carry? You shouldn't be carrying this burden. This is not God's way. Come to me. All of you who are weary and laden with a heavy burden, and I will give you what? Rest. It's a salvation rest. This is Sabbath rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's the yoke of discipleship. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. If you have yet to find the salvation your soul desperately longs for and needs, I'm here to tell you this morning that God still offers it freely. Its substance is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and it can be received by nothing other than faith alone. And so I encourage you this morning, don't wait another minute. Today, right now, engage with the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. And though this preacher is inadequate to adequately communicate them, yet we know your spirit moves in the hearts of your people to take the truth of your word and apply it to our lives, to apply it to our understanding, and even to save. So I pray, Father, by your sovereign grace, would you grant to some today the gift of faith, that they would discover within them a strong desire to know Christ, to belong to Christ, to be forgiven because of the substance of Christ's substitutionary atonement, to rest in Christ and find their rest in him. Oh, Father, today, would you do that? to give us the joy of seeing you work, this marvelous work of grace. We praise you, Father, for this time to gather and think about these things. Be glorified now in how they are applied in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name.